There they go. Some of our children there, they're in good hands. Uh, everybody's thinking of Allstate now. No, Pastor D, they're in good hands, I promise. What a blessing. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Matthew, chapter number five. While you're turning, I, I just want to share a, a moment with you, a personal moment. Um, I texted Pastor Darren late last night, and we discussed this. Um, I, let me remind you of a missionary family that we know and love. They're not Grace Covenant missionaries, but they're the Perrys. They worship with us on multiple occasions. I've been your pastor for two and a half years, and over the course of that time, I believe they've been here three times, at least two that I know of. Most recently, remember when we had the covered lunch together on campus, uh, the uh, box lunches that we had? They joined us for that. The whole family was here. Um, Grayson Perry is the oldest son. Grayson set up that baptismal tub that we had in the basement. He's on staff at a church in Concord, and they loaned that to us. They, they're serving in Matagalpa, Nicaragua, um, and they've been serving there for some time. They went there thinking they were going to do a Bible club for kids, which they still do some, but the Lord opened a door for them to minister to one of the most neglected and scorned, marginalized parts of the community, the deaf community there. They've been ministering and growing and multiplying among the deaf people there. And none of the Perrys are hearing impaired. They just knew sign language really well and Spanish. Yesterday, I received a call uh, yesterday evening after dinner. Jeremy, the dad, a friend, collapsed while he was uh, playing Frisbee with, uh, with some friends and slipped into eternity. They're in country in Nicaragua, and um, I don't have any more details to share. They loved this church. They loved you. They loved the fellowship here. And Darren and I both discussed that their mission was one of those that resonated deep with our church family's missionary commitment and probably likely um, could have been formalized at some point in the future. Um, that remains to be seen. I have no more to share except to ask you, please, church family, would you pray for our friends who are hurting? Would you join me in prayer? Let me give you a moment to pray. I'll do my best. Lord, in times like these, we are reminded that nothing catches you off guard. The worst of the worst days that we can imagine. And in the reality, Lord, we know that the sting of death is gone and, and Jeremy is united with you in eternity and to a degree we're envious of that this morning. We, we are fully aware of that reality today on the authority of your word, but our hearts are broken and we grieve with the Perry family. I'm thinking of Avery and Grayson and Addison and Bryson, these four precious godly young people. I'm thinking of Wendy and their mother Karen who was here worshiping with us. Karen who also is a widower. Lord, I'm asking you to wrap your arms around them in a special way this morning and in the days ahead. We're grateful for their work and their labor and uh, we just commit them to you. Now, Lord, speak to our hearts from your word 
and give us focus and remind us, Lord, even in a moment like this, remind us of the brevity of life, that none of us are promised our next breath, much less tomorrow. So help us to live in a way that shows that we belong to you. Help us to leave this world when it's our time with no regrets and with no uh, skeletons in the closet that our family has to unearth. Lord, help us to be man enough and woman enough, young or old, to deal with what needs to be dealt with now, with our arms outstretched and surrender to you in Christ's name. Let the church say amen. Amen. Thank you so much for that. Keep them in prayer. We would have had a missions Monday this week. I'm asking you for missions Monday to pray for the Perry family. Pastor Darren agreed with that. And I love his response. He said, contact their sending church and tell them Grace Covenant will do anything we can to help in any way that we can. If the family needs to get back or somebody needs to get to them. I love y'all. I love this church for so many reasons. Matthew chapter number five, Jeremy read for us a, um, the passage there. Thank you so much, Jeremy. I'm grateful for that. And I'm really grateful for the text this morning. It has worked me over quite a bit in, uh, in recent days. There are three very practical warnings that you're going to see flesh out in the text. We're going to deal with adultery. We're going to deal with the fruit of lust. Parents, if you have younger children in the room, it's okay. I'm not going to get graphic. Y'all should know me well enough by now, but I'm also not going to pull punches because, believe me, starting at kindergarten now, there is an inundation and indoctrination of sensuality and sexuality and gender identity that's begun in our public school system. So uh, I won't go where they go, but I will go where God's Word goes this morning. How about that? That's the deal you signed up for. The, after the second time you came to hear me preach, you knew that's the way it was going to go. Let's do that. I want to start this message, though, with the end in view. And here's the end that I have in view. Listen to me carefully. We're going to deal with lust. We're going to deal with where it goes sometimes as adultery and and, and physical acts of intimacy. I'm going to use that phrase often for some young ears in the room. Listen to me carefully. You were made for more. You, child of God, brother or sister in Christ, are royalty. And you were made for more. You don't have to get down in the gutter and waller around with the world because you are nobility. Man of God, God has called you to be a noble man. Woman of God, God has called you to be a noble woman. You were made for more. You were redeemed for more than this world has to offer you in the area of fleeting gratification. I want you to keep that subtext in mind. It's the last point of the sermon. I'll get there and unpack it. But I want you to remember that this morning as we navigate the text. Let's look at that first verse, verse 27. It's pretty straightforward. Jesus says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. Well, yes, we've heard it said. If I had some of my um, older peskers in the room, Daniel probably knows. I don't want to put him on the spot, but I'm wondering, does anybody remember which commandment of the Ten Commandments that is? Can anybody tell me, these aren't gang signs, which commandment of the Ten Commandments that was. Just take a guess, congregation. Let us wow you online with the, the, uh, the knowledge of the congregation. Which one was it? Wow. Pretty impressed. I love it. The Seventh Commandment. You ready for it? Here it is. It's very verbose. You shall not commit adultery. 
period, dot, the end. The word there is na'ap. It's, uh, it's actually, if you look at it, it's just an N and a little mark and a P. That's the way it's uh, transliterated. It's very straightforward, and it equates adultery with idolatry. It's not an interchangeable word, but it puts it on that same spiritual sin level, and that's where it belongs. Adultery is very destructive, and that's the first point this morning. If you're going to write something down, adultery is destructive. Okay, I know how you roll. I know some of you know me well. Only two main points this morning. Subpoints, though. We got, I'm, I'm going to load you up on some subs, but, but two main points this morning. Adultery is destructive. Uh, adultery here means adultery. <laughs> it means intimacy, mostly physical, but not exclusively, but it does mean fits, physical intimacy that is only ordained and blessed by God to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife in their marriage bed. God established the home before he established the church. He did. The home was established before the church was. And God established the home before he established government. Aren't you thankful for that? Increasingly as the days wear on, right? But I I want you to see something. Marriage is not this idea that man and a patriarchal governmental society cooked up to try to set up some worldview system. No, it was ordained and established by God from the beginning. The Bible says in Genesis chapter number 2, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Many of you, like me, go to the King James, and they shall cleave, that word, unto each other. Adultery is destructive at the fabric of society. God's plan is for one man and one woman until death parts them in a monogamous marriage for those that get married. By the way, many who are all mixed up in this whirlwind that's going on now in the zeitgeist of self-gratifying, anti-Christ, anti-Bible, hyper-individualistic, relativistic moralism, I'll try to insert some more fancy $3 words there, sorry, But they try to claim that Jesus never addressed this in the New Testament. Newsflash, he quoted this verse twice. Uh, So he did. It's addressed in the Old and the New Testament. Our adversary, the devil himself, hear me church, aims all of the artillery that he can at the family. And he aims it at the home. If he can disorient us and distract us and cause dissension in our homes, it shows up everywhere else. It shows up at the works place. It shows up um, in the marketplace. It shows up at the church house. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter number 13, verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all. And let, marriage, let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I can't load you up on all the New Testament has to say about physically intimate sins. I'll stop there. But there's a lot. And it's, it's held into a, a really a distinct category because it does something to the sinner and the recipient that other sins don't. It's just, that's just the way the Bible records it. Everything that uh, the enemy tells us to do is anti-God. And let me tell you one of Satan's worldview tactics. 
Here's what he's done. And America has drunk it in hook, line, and sinker. Here's, here's a lie from the devil. Everything exists for your consumption and your pleasure. The world is your oyster. You are on the throne of your own life. Everything exists for you to make you happy and to do what feels good. The Bible says by nature we are children of wrath. In fact, the enemy's motivation here is to keep us, listen carefully, especially my midweek crowd. I want you to see if you pick up on anything I'm laying down here. The enemy's plan is to keep us, listen, dead in our trespasses and sins. The enemy wants to keep us following the course of this world instead of following our God and King. The enemy wants to keep us uh, from, by embracing the disobedience as a way of life. The enemy wants to keep us driven by our own passions, doing whatever we desire with our bodies. My body, my choice. The lie from the garden. The enemy wants to keep us doing whatever we desire with our minds. I'll find my own way. The enemy wants to keep us living indistinguishably from the rest of the world, bound for the wrath of God to suffer all eternity in a place called hell alongside him. Our men's and women's groups, their little flags and radars are going off. That's Ephesians 2. It's the first part of Ephesians 2, which we studied this week. That's the enemy's plan. And it shows up in a grotesque way in the fruit of adultery. Here's a few things that adultery does. It does much more than this, but let's talk about why it's so destructive. Adultery is destructive because it breaks a promise. It breaks a promise between a husband and a wife who made a promise, a, a covenant together before witnesses. Um, they made a covenant together before witnesses and in the presence of God himself, asking God to bless the union, and it breaks a promise. Adultery is destructive because it leads to chaos. It becomes the cloud, the chaotic cloud that then covers and taints all other decisions that are made in the family. Where there was stability and trust, now there is secrecy and dishonesty, and it's put a cloud over everything else. One final thing just for the time's sake this morning. It harms every family member of the parties involved. Nobody escapes the harm. Every family member of the parties involved. Can I just, before I quote some more scripture to you, say a word. Brother, if you're almost there, if you've got a plan in place, stop. Stop it. It's not worth it. You've not thought this through. Sister, if you're almost there, stop. Don't do it. Don't do it. You've not counted the cost. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter number six, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Verse 32. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Adultery is destructive. Jesus is ratifying that. You've heard it said. Don't commit adultery. God's desire and design is for those who will marry it's for those who decide to get married, who feel the call to marriage, for them to enjoy a lasting 
loving and liberating relationship in their marriage. His desire and design for our single brothers and sisters who are committed to singleness, to honor God, is for their absolute fulfillment in Christ as they walk in the Spirit. And sexual sin undermines both. Jesus is underscoring that, but he takes it further. Like, it's bad enough. If that were the sermon, it's like, whew, that was tough this morning, wasn't it? Yeah, adultery, he said it about 47 times. I didn't know. I'm like, come on, move on, right? I mean, it's strong enough there. But then Jesus, as he's already done, he did it with anger, and here he goes again. Look with me at verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see what he's done? He's moving from the fruit to the, say it, the root. He's not just dealing with where it shows up as an act of commission. He's dealing with where the seed gets planted and tended to. This categorical and antithetical way that Jesus communicates marks a lot of his preaching. There's some poetry here that's quite beautiful, weird to say, considering the text, but yes, it's beautiful in the semantic way that he decides to work through these um, incredible six principles he'll lay out like this, where this is number two. But think about it. He makes his point, and then he makes his hearers feel the weight of his points. He confronts his audience. He did it last week this way. You, you think yourselves okay. You're removed, morally speaking, from the sin of murdering, but you hate people, and that's the same pathway that leads to that fruit. That's the same route. You need to repent. And here he's saying, you, you, you probably think yourself pretty good and holy because you've not actually committed adultery, but I'm saying to you, you need to deal with it in your heart. You're thinking and dwelling on some things. You have no business thinking and dwelling on, and it's time to stop it and repent. What do you do with thoughts like that, with sin? One writer colorfully illustrates it this way, talking of sin. He said, we must not pamper it. We must not flirt with it. We must not enjoy nibbling around the edges of it. We are to hate it, crush it, and dig it out. And the Holy Spirit gives us the tools to do that. So how do you do that? Okay, first we know that adultery is destructive. Now let's deal with the root here we go. Here's your first point, sub-point, I should say, right? Because the first point was adultery is destructive. Sub-point, know your heart. Now, what does culture say? Culture doesn't say know your heart. What, what does it say? What do you see on myfacespace.com? Just kidding, that's not a thing. What do you say? Follow your heart. Yeah, follow your heart. <laughs> right? I'm waiting on some seminary student, like, to have a this thing says, follow your heart, and it says, straight to the wrath of God. I mean, you know, come on, that's a little intense, but, but what does the Bible say? What, what does God's word say about our hearts? Well, it says we're to know our hearts. Jesus here is saying you need to know what's going on in your heart. The Bible says in Proverbs 4.23, I've got it up there, I quoted it last week to you, keep your heart or guard your heart with all diligence, with all vigilance, the ESV says, for from it flow the springs of life. Jeremiah, familiar passage, Grace Covenant knows this verse. Here's why we don't follow our heart. Because the Bible says in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
I, I don't follow my heart, follow Jesus. <laughs> We're to follow Jesus. We often think of our sin as something we do as a commission. It's an act we do, and certainly that is that. But Jesus here is reminding us that we sin because we're sinners. See the difference? A lot of us think, well, I'm not a sinner. I don't sin. <laughs> Let's talk about lying, but uh, moving on. Adrian Rogers said it this way. I love the way he said it. He says, a man is not a sinner because he sins. He sins because he is a sinner. A man's not a thief because he steals. He steals because he is a thief. A man's not a liar because he tells lies. He tells lies because he is a liar. This is who we are. Hello. Hi. Hi. Look in the mirror. How was church day? Awesome. Pastor called me a lying, adulterer, and thief. It was fantastic. I'm not calling you that. I'm just saying we're sinners. By nature, that's who we are. That's our Control, alt, delete, that's our operating system. It's the baseline for us. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And Jesus preached and he taught and they walked and talked with Jesus and people sat at the feet of Jesus and never repented of their sins and wouldn't trust him and they weren't saved. Why? Because they didn't see themselves as sinners in need of a Savior. Oh, friend, friend this morning, if you don't know him personally because you don't think you need to because you're living a pretty good life, you've not actually committed murder and you've not actually committed adultery, I'm here to tell you Jesus has come this morning in the person of the Holy Spirit with the authority of his word to deal with you at the root and to tell you you are a worse sinner than you are prepared probably to admit. The seeds of every vile thing you can imagine are in that heart of yours and this heart of mine. You need a heart transplant, and I know just the physician to do it. His name is Jesus Christ. He's calling us to a greater righteousness than we're capable of doing on our own. We need him to do it in us and through us. Well, I think it was the Freeman section over there. Stole my thunder a second ago. Thank you for that. No, just kidding. There are three mantras I'd say of society. Actually, I did, I did wait, and she responded. It wasn't just rhetorical. The mantra of the age has been and is for some time, follow your heart. There's another couple of others out there too, I think. Um, so follow your heart, live your life. Hashtag live your life, right? What's the other one I, I like? Uh, proclaim your truth or live your truth. Sorry. What does Jesus say to all three of those? No, no, and no. Don't follow your heart, follow me. He says, I've come to make you into something brand new, brand new that you could never even imagine in your wildest dreams. I've come to make you nobility, a king's kid who treats others with dignity and respect and nobility, even in traffic on 77. Follow me, he says, I wanna make you new. Um, Live your life. He says, no, die to your sinful, selfish desires. Get off the throne of your life. Die daily and come alive in me. Proclaim your truth. No, he says, proclaim my truth because I'm the way, the truth, the only one that matters and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Proclaim the good news of the gospel. Follow your heart? I don't think so. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, 
false witness, slander, and the list goes on. The latest Apple Watch commercial I saw recently, um, I know there are other techie devices out there, but this other wearables that do all kinds of great things, but I, they seem to have the market on baking so much technology into this little thing. And there's a fellow sitting on a bus, you've probably seen the ad, and he's doing this, and the camera zooms in, and it shows an ECG, a heart monitor going, while he's like touching his watch. I mean, right? So he's touching his watch, there's a heart monitor going, and it says, the voiceover says, wait, are you taking a, are you monitoring your heart there? And he's like, yeah. And then he drops through the bus, I hope that's CGI, not actual. Anyway, drops through the bus and lands in a classroom. I guess it would have to be. Or, or lands at work. That's where he is. And work's going on, and he's, he's doing his head like this and taking his heart rate at work. I'm sure it's different than when he was on the bus. And uh, wait, are you doing it there? And he like this. And then it drops through again, and he winds up on a playground. Looks like a kid's pool party, and he takes it again, and he's obviously relaxed. And it says, are you checking it all those places? And he says, I am it's pretty remarkable, isn't it? And it's pretty important for people with heart conditions that they keep a constant watch on their heart. You're already there. You and I have a heart condition and we need to keep a watch on it. We've got to monitor our hearts. We've got to know our hearts. We cannot think we are righteous just because we haven't made it all the way to committing some heinous act. We are sinners by nature and we need to keep a watch on our heart. Jesus is after a root. When we talk about lust, I'm going to go here as delicately as I can. We are not talking about a glance. We're not talking about an appreciation of beauty. Do you understand that? That's not what we're discussing. We're talking about a gaze, though, that keeps on looking. Now, the good news is everybody in here is a human being, so I don't have to unpack this much more than I'm doing. But a gaze that excites the physically intimate imaginations of our heart and mind. It's a look that takes us mentally down a path and takes the thinker to a place where the thinker engages in his mind or her mind in acts reserved only for a married man and married woman in their marriage bed. Lust is completely self-centered. It is only interested in immediate gratification and a man lusting after a woman makes her into an object instead of a daughter of the king. A woman lusting after a man makes him into a thing to be exploited instead of the nobility that God has created him to be. This is not the way of Christ and it's not the way of the church. This kind of thinking, this kind of unrepentant, unrestrained appetite and imagination is what is fueling the largest modern day slave trade in the history of humanity and trafficking. It's known as the pornographic industry. You were made for more. You were made for more. Be on guard. Monitor that heart for lingering looks, lingering thoughts of physically intimate gratification. This can be destructive. Know your heart. The second thing I'd tell you to do right here in the text is to protect your eyes. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. I don't want to downplay the path of where sin is carrying the sinner. Do you see it? This does not end well. This ends in total destruction. 
If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. There may be some of you sitting here this morning that don't struggle with this. You don't look. Like you don't take a second look. You don't have a look that glances. You've got victory in this area. That's awesome. Some of you, though, do struggle. And you still put things in the pathway of your eyes knowingly. Now look, you walk around at a store, you can't control everything that pops up. You can look a little disengaged. My recommendation is to walk around like the teenagers do, right? Just like this. Just don't have the phone out. Just put the phone away. Just keep your head down, right, if you need to, if that's your thing. Get some little horse blinders. Carl can hook you up, um, right? Brother Carl can get some blinders for you if you need them. Uh, you may not need that, I, but, but use some sense, right? Protect your eyes. We, we would say in, in youth ministry for years, we bounce your eyes, right? If you see something, Mark loves that. If you see something, you know, just kind of look away. We've done that. We've been in shopping things, and there's a store that's obviously not for me to look at. Moving on, I look the other way and keep walking. Why? Because I want to honor my wife. I want my kids to see me not degrading women into objects for gratification. Oswald Chambers, though, says, for those of you that have strength in this area, an unguarded strength is a double weakness. So some of you think you got it, you're good with it. Oh, stuff doesn't bother me. You still are commanded to protect your eyes. Because it may not bother you at that conscious level, but subconsciously some things can be going on, seeds being planted, and what feels like the right moment happened or the wrong moment, actually, and something happened that you like, where did that come from? Protect your eyes. The Bible tells us that the enemies of humanity are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil, self-explanatory, we know who that is. The flesh, our own sinful, selfish desires, obviously want to pull us away from Christ and his word. But what does it mean when it says the world? The world. I'm still dealing with what we look at. The Bible says in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, when I was a kid, I... Go back to that verse if you don't mind, Mark. When I was a kid, struggled with that one, right? Because I was like, wait, the Bible says God so loved the world, right? Different thing. What's he talking about here with the world? The one is God so loved the people of the world. This is the world system. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And this world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of the Father abides forever. The world would be all of the people right here, the people, places, and things that actively pull us away from Christ and his word and toward our own desires. Some of the old timers in the room, I'm including myself in that, by the way, would say the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's how we learned it, right? That's in the authorized text, whoever authorized it. The heart is the source of sinfulness, but the eyes are certainly active in enticing the heart. Lest you think it's easier for a blind person, it isn't. They have imaginations. I know. It's still drawn to what gratifies the flesh. Be careful, little eyes, what you see, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Well, I can't come here without touching that porn industry one more time here briefly and just to say... It's devastating. It's poison. Dr. Klein, Victor Klein, former professor of psychology at the University of Utah, notes the four steps of psychological poison that happens when we engage in viewing images like this. The first is addiction. The same chemical reaction in the brain happens. It happens 
with uh, drug-induced addiction. Same effect on the brain. Then escalation. It looks like a drug addict. More is needed. More deviant, more explicit images are required. So addiction, deviation, then desensitization. They become desensitized. Things that should shock and awe and, and should be appalling behavior, what should be shunned, is not only tolerated but celebrated, sought out, and, and now we live in a culture where it's trying to be normalized. And finally, almost invariably, this doctor's on record is saying, almost without fail, the perverseness is acted out in a physical act. And that's when women and children tend to be harmed. Satan hates women. The porn industry is your proof. God loves women. Christ honored women when he walked and talked here on this earth. We as men are called by this Bible, New and Old Testament life, to be protectors and celebrators of the women that God has placed in our lives. In fact, husbands are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. When we knowingly, premeditatedly engage our eyes toward lust, we are siding with the world, the flesh, and the enemy himself. Men of nobility cherish, honor, and rescue women who are being exploited. Know your heart. Protect your eyes. Watch your hands. I think what you see here are some senses engaged. This sense of your innermost being in meditation. This sense of what you see. Be careful what you see. And then this sense of what you touch and engage with physically. Watch your hands. Jesus said if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away for it's better to you to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. All of this ties together. It's a package deal. It all begins with the heart. The eyes can certainly entice the heart but the heart directs the hands. The hands act in response to the attitude and the direction of the heart. Keep your hands to yourself. Can anybody hear the grandma saying that? Keep your hands to yourself. Dads of daughters in the room, hello, right? We would say to prospective suitors, keep your hands to yourself. Why would we say that? Because we know how sinful man can be and what the heart does and what the eyes see and what the body wants to do. John Owen says this, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. We've got to constantly go after this and keep a watch on this and remember it's devastating in its scope. So how does the Bible instruct us to kill sexual sin? How does it instruct us to go to war with it? Here's a newsflash. I can't find anywhere in Scripture where it says to get in there when this is the fight and get in the midst of it and fight it out. Nope. You know what the instruction is with this type of sin and temptation? Run. Flee. It, it's all throughout Scripture. Think of Joseph in the Old Testament. Here it is fleshed out in the New. Listen, tell me if you pick up on a theme that I'm laying down. Proverbs 5, keep your way far from her. It's talking about the act of adultery here. Don't go near the door of her house. 2 Timothy 2, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. 
1 Corinthians 10 tells us that the Bible is clear, that God has given us a way out. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation make and provide a way of escape. Praise God that you may be able to endure it. Remember, Jesus calls us, inspires us, and equips us to gain a pure heart. Think back to the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We can only have this kind of pure heart as a gift of grace from God by faith in Christ. Radical purity doesn't just mean I don't do adultery. I don't do this. It means I'm addressing it at the root. I'm sensitive at the root. We learn to monitor our hearts. We learn to protect our eyes. We learn to keep our hands clean for the glory of God. We want to celebrate light and life as men and women of nobility. We get bothered by sin, not just other people's sins, but our sin. It's a heart that's sensitive to the plight of others. It's a heart of nobility that refuses to nurse lust that winds up objectifying our fellow image bearers. That's point number one. Point number two is twice as long. I'm kidding. It's just that application I brought to you at the beginning. It's really the close. You were made for more. Do you get that? You were made for more. Ephesians 2. Last week in our study, it popped up for a lot of us, and we were talking about the verses that we had all highlighted in our own Bible study and wanted to explain and, and give application for and tell how we responded to the text. And most of us, many of us, there are a couple Bible nerds in the men's class that really went to the second half, but a lot of us lived on that first half because it's such a beautiful picture of the gospel. You know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 probably from memory, but I want to look at verse 10. Look at, at the context, though. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. And then look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are his workmanship. Brother, you're his handiwork. Sister, you are his masterpiece. First Peter 1. You can leave that verse up for just a second. I'd like for them to just meditate on that. You're his workmanship. First Peter 2 says that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. I didn't make this stuff up. 2 Corinthians 6 says he's a father to us and we are sons and daughters to the Lord Almighty. You're king's kids, child of God. You were made for more. Jesus addresses the fruit, but he goes hard after the root. A quote from Dr. Ray Ortland Jr.'s latest book, The Death of Porn, which I highly commend to you. He makes this statement, God's love for you is too great to be limited by what you deserve. God's love for you is too great to be limited by what you deserve. So how do we find a pathway to success? How do we win over porn? I've given you the outline. I'm just going to run back through the points real quick. Here they are. Number one, never forget how destructive sin is. Right, You're thinking about maybe instant gratification or the enemy's planted a thought or you're, you're beginning to lust. You're thinking, hey, I just wonder if I... Never forget, sin destroys everything it touches. 
Total destruction. If you place sin all the way out, it winds up in hell. I mean, that's just... Never forget how destructive sin is. Number two, know your heart. Protect your eyes. Watch your hands. And remember whose you are and what you were made for. That's how you stay on the pathway of victory, right? That's how you keep yourself radically pure. It's not you keeping yourself so much as it is God working in you. That's how it manifests. Got it? But what about those of us in the room that are struggling? I'm going to call for the musicians this morning. I'm going to ask for the singers to come up for Julia to step up as well. She'll give you a chance to respond to this. Let me address very quickly this morning as I close those that are struggling. If you're here this struggling, if I were here this morning struggling, if I were somewhere on the pathway headed toward a physical act, right? If I was actively engaging my heart in things I shouldn't engage in, or I'm actively looking at stuff I shouldn't be looking at, or I'm actively touching and doing things, physically that I know I should not be doing I would go back first of all I'd be thankful I found myself in church this morning because the Lord cares enough about me to lovingly bring me back to himself but Psalm 119 where we opened it's beautiful how prescriptive this is for this need if you just look at the first two verses uh, I'm not going to put the verses on the screen if you've got your Bibles and want to turn there you can Psalm 119 it's close to the very middle of your Bible this is that final moment here. I'm literally closing with this. Psalm 119, how do you do it? If you look at verse 9, it says, How can a young man keep his way pure? It's the first scripture we read. So this young man knows he needs to keep it pure. You've got to admit you have a need. You've got to s- stop trying to gloss over this and wash it away as just, Oh, it's just red-blooded. Yeah, forget that. That's garbage. That's trash. That's a lie. You're a sinner and you need a Savior. You've got to admit your need. You've got to follow God's word. Look at what it says. It says, by guarding it according to your word. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Admit your need. Follow God's word. Verse 10 says, with my whole heart I seek you. The third thing I would say is purpose in your heart and mind to stay clean. Pastor D spoke two weeks ago on consecrated identity. He used Daniel as an example. Daniel 1.8, Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look on things I shouldn't look on. And then number four, stay in God's word. Stay in God's word. How, how do you get victory if you're struggling? Admit your need. Talk to a brother. Talk to a sister. Talk to God. Get in the word of God. Commit your life to God. Commit your eyes, your hands, your heart to the Lord. And stay in God's word. God's desire is for you to walk in the nobility he created you for. You were made for more than just living after the desires of the flesh and the passions of this world. Maybe take a moment right now and admit your need and ask the Lord to do a deep work.
Father, we confess this morning we do need you. Every hour of every day we need you. We want to walk in a way that brings glory and honor to you and treats others with the dignity and the respect that you have called us to. We are men of nobility, women of nobility. Lord, we want to treat each other in that way. Help us, Lord, to guard our hearts with all vigilance for out of it flow the issues of life. Let's stand together and sing as we worship before we're dismissed.